So, it's Santa Voices. I'm Billy Pilgrim. I'm Griselda Hex. And I'm Colonel Sunbeam. And uh, today, we're here, just the three of us, to talk about um, to talk about a little trip that you took, Griselda. Yes, it's been dubbed, Griselda Goes to Washington. Yeah. Why don't you... We're talking about unions... That's going to be a big part of this. But why don't we, let's not bury the lead. Why don't you just tell us, like, a little bit about the trip, first off. Why did you go and all that stuff? Sure. So, I, like many of, um, like many graduate students across the country right now, have been, um, since 2016, and even even before that, really this, this whole story starts in 2000, but we'll get there. Um, since I started graduate school, graduate school in 2016, I think would be the most accurate thing to say. Um, We have all kind of been in this sort of interesting turbine of academic labor organization. And one of the ways to organize graduate students is through unions and so the union that works with graduate students at Washington University in St. Louis, where I am a student, is um, Service Employees International Unions, SEIU, which I will call it SEIU from now on. It's just easier. And so I've been a part of this union for a few years, and I was on the original um, organizing committee when things were like fairly unstructured and we were really trying to just gauge whether or not um, graduate students on campus were in support of forming a union or not. And um, that was sort of the first time that I had ever really thought about what unions do, what their role is, if I want to be a part of one. When was this? In fall 2016. 2016. Yeah. So this was um, WashU's first shot at uh, forming a union. Yes, then, um, bef- okay, so if we can detour from your trip a little bit, I think that this actually might be an interesting story to kind of like expand on this in the pod, is that, so we have all revealed that we're students at Washington University, mm-hmm. and now we're talking about 2016, the first go at forming a union. So this is before I was a student here, so I'm going to, uh, were, you were a student here? Yeah, I was. Yeah, okay. Um. So if I'm not so correct me if I'm wrong, but this was an attempt with in conjunction with the Graduate Student Senate, which is an officially recognized Washington University body. The Senate was not really involved. And in fact, the Senate had taken a very neutral stance up until um, last spring when we sort of um, we being uh, members of the Senate, of which I was a member Um, who were also members of the graduate student union that had at this point sort of unofficially, officially formed. Um, And we can get probably into more detail there, too, about what I mean when I say unofficial slash slash I do want to. Mm -hmm. Um, And we uh, were fighting at that point for a $15 minimum wage for all workers on campus. And we... um, asked the student senate, the graduate student senate, to hold a vote on that um, to announce whether or not they would endorse this specific 
um, movement and ask the administration at WashU um, to provide $15 an hour for all employees. And they ended up passing that motion, I think, by like one or two votes. It was really sad and pathetic. When was that? That was just last spring. I remember in the 2000s. Okay, the, well, I'm, in 2016, there was a, a push to form a union, mm-hmm. and that is different than the union we have now, right? Yes. Because so, like, what is that difference? What was going on in 2016, and what didn't happen? Because I remember sure. seeing emails from the deans like, don't form a union. <laughs> and there was yeah. like, and I remember there was something in the student body, the graduate student body that like required a vote maybe. Yes. And it, and it didn't pass because of the way that the university was able to manipulate mm-hmm. graduate students yeah. against each other. Yes. I was like, what was it called? There were some voters they're called challenge votes right challenge votes um so i was one of them and it was i just remember um you know not being the only one obviously but there was like very murky um theories about how they had decided who was going to be a challenge vote and who wasn't um and technically according to the um the rules that seiu had laid out for us, um, I was supposed to have qualified to be just a regular voter, but was not. I don't know if you were Griselda. Or- I was able to vote, uh-huh. um, but a lot of my colleagues weren't. And to understand why some students were, they were able to cast a vote, but they would have had to be litigated mm-hmm. um, in the NLRB. You need to know a little bit about the history of the NLRB um, and what it is for. Because, like, what is that? NLRB means the National Labor Relations Board, and it was created in 1935 as part of the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, under FDR during the Great Depression. And this, um, the NLRB essentially is the, uh, like, the body that oversees union formation and will oversee what are called union elections. And so when we are talking about voting, whether or not like you're a challenge vote or if you are seen as like a legitimate voter in the eyes of WashU, what we're talking about is graduate students petitioning the NLRB, the board, in order to hold an election in which graduate students would vote on whether or not they wanted to um, unionize with SEIU. And so WashU um, has the right to create the voter list and um, the parameters that were placed upon, um, that were in place at that point that would determine whether or not you could vote or not was whether or not you had been um, doing a form of labor, of labor, whether you are a research assistant or a teaching assistant um, in the spring previous spring mm-hmm. and that's I see. basically it yeah. and this is so i'm imagining i know we came in with the, a very different construction forgive me if i'm going on lost script here but i'm imagining like we're kind of forming a narrative here leading towards this trip to washington yes. so we're kind mm-hmm. of talking about so the, so this vote um the graduate students petition the NLRB board mm-hmm. via WashU. We submit a petition directly to the NLRB. This which, is in 2016. Yes. Okay. Which, by the way, 
um, our vote took place in October 2016. So keep that in mind, right at the end of October. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, the NLRB had only recently decided that graduate students at universities were statutorily considered employees. So is there some, could the universe, could the university potentially take away our status as employees to thwart? They don't consider us employees now. And they basically, and the university never has considered us employees. They consider our relationship with the university fundamentally as one of education. And this um, decision on which the NLRB Uh, And we're going to get more to that when we talk about the action. But the NLRB has flip-flopped on this three times since 2000. In 2000, it was the first time that graduate students were ever considered statutory employees. Um, And then I believe in 2004, that was overturned during uh, George Bush's administration. And then in 2016, in what is known as the Columbia decision, Um, during Obama's administration, once more uh, university graduate students um, who were doing work for the university were declared by the NLRB to be statutorily employees. And this leads us to the action. Because now, under the Trump administration, they've kind of left this alone for a few years, and all of us uh, who are unionizing and um, interested in academic labor... um, All of us have been kind of waiting for Trump's NLRB because each NLRB, the board, is um, made up of appointees that the president appoints. And so it's it flips when there's a new administration. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we've kind of been waiting for the Columbia decision to be overturned. And finally, as of September, I think it was like the 23rd, it was late September of this year, they've proposed a rule that would um, wrench away the right from graduate student workers to unionize. So then at that point... um, Well, let me ask a couple more questions here. Sure. I'm sorry. I do want to get to Washington, but I was thinking like we are are in kind of an interesting position here because um, although we are all graduate students and we have presented this typically to an academic crowd probably most of our listeners aren't super familiar with the ins and outs of Mm -hmm. academia and grad student work. And so I thought it might be interesting to dwell a little bit more on like getting to your trip to Washington. Mm -hmm. Let's dwell. And so, um, so for one thing, uh, Colonel Sunbeam, you're a graduate student. I am indeed. And you teach here. I do. So, how you're teaching one class right now? Yes, one per semester. Um, How many hours do you spend on that in a week? Oh, um, aside from class time, no, including class in time. class, including class time. So class time is about three hours a week. Um, preparation takes anywhere from two to three hours per class, depending on how heavy the readings are. Right now, I'm in a, a culture and literature some seminar, so. Um, you know, depending on the level, the level of preparation can, can vary. Um, but yeah, I'd say um, maybe, uh, let's see, what's two times three, like maybe seven to eight hours a week at least. Seven to eight hours a week. And that's not including grading. I don't know. Um, I haven't Ooh. really calculated that, honestly. Um, okay, grading certainly counts. Yeah. Um, 
on top of your studies, mm-hmm. which is also work. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be clear about that because mm-hmm. I think that that's often really lost on people who don't don't have you know any connections with the university um, and don't work for a university. Academics, our labor is our research as much as it is teaching and educating. Mm -hmm. And I think that because the labor that we do in terms of our own research is so unregulated and so hard to put a number on Mm -hmm. that it's most people don't actually consider it labor. And WashU because it's is abstract. a research institution. And so the fact that they are denying that our research is part of our labor is extremely contradictory to their mission and to their reputation. Um, and so one thing I thought it, it might be interesting to bring up is that in 2016, when, when graduate students at this time, not including myself, mm-hmm. um, were trying to unionize, how, how did the university respond like what did they say about what did they say to students about unionizing how did they portray graduate work do you feel like they were supportive and like what i'm trying to get at here is like it's easy uh, uh, the university is frequently portrayed Mm -hmm. as a as not just a liberal institution Mm -hmm. but a left-wing institution by all forms of mainstream media conservative and liberal but but preventing the formation of a union is a very conservative thing to do mm-hmm. it's not it's 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 not what you would expect from a marxist socialist body like the university yeah. and it's not just that the university said no you can't have a union they used some pretty duplicitous tactics didn't they right well, one thing that I think that I recall that really speaks to this idea of the university as a leftist institution and reputation, but not in praxis, um, is that I remember, um, you know, we got all sorts of emails at that time from Dean Tate, from Dean William Tate, uh, still currently serving as our dean. Um, or as, as I like to say, Dean Taint. Yeah. Woo. Woo, woo. Watch out, um, Dean Taint. <laughs> you're on, what's it called? You're blast. on blast. Blow. <laughs> 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 Colonel anyway. Sunbeam, got your ass. <laughs> got <Dean> the slang <laughs> in the bank. Um, okay. Anyway, Dean Taint, uh, <laughs> he sent us so many emails. And I remember one in particular was like, y'all don't need a union. I have an open door policy in my office. Literally, his office is between at least behind at least two locked and secured doors so you have to make an appointment i I don't know how long in advance because he's like a very busy man with all sorts of um people's lives to ruin uh (laughs) but he i remember him making this claim that he had an open door policy that if we as grad students need anything we could just go on over mosey into his office have a cup of tea and talk about our feelings um and so i remember that there's just you know this continual discourse of like you don't need to have actual formal a formal contract we'll just listen to you when clearly historical evidence have, has proven that that's not true which is why we wanted to unionize yeah, 
I think that um, what we should start saying about Washi's administration is not that they have blocked, which is true, but I want to use the language like very specifically union busting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They yeah. are union busters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A hundred percent. One of the first things I got involved with, um, with the union as we have it now, and I, I want to come back to when the vote in 2016 didn't happen. Like mm-hmm. how did our union as we have it now form? If you know anything about, if you can answer those questions, but, but I just want to say one of the first things that I did when I got involved with our union was to work, um, on, um, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, non-resident student rights guarantee. Mm-hmm. So, so there was a movement in our union to have the university, explicitly state that even if a non-U.S. resident student's immigration status became compromised, that the university would ensure that they would be able to finish their degree. Mm -hmm. And now remind me, because I'm fairly certain this was the case, because I was around WashU, but not a student at the time. But did, did did they not make veiled threats about removing international students that participated in union activity? Yeah, and I don't even think they were that veiled. They basically, and um, SEIU took them to court, and they lost over this. They took Washington University to court for that. Yeah, over these statements. Um, And uh, I don't know how official the court proceedings were, but they filed a complaint, and there was... Um, the NLRB said, no, you can't say that because there were um, there were graduate directors on campus in various departments. I'm thinking specifically in STEM departments, such as uh, the one that comes to mind first is chemistry, but in economics as well, that were really backing up these more like legally, like very carefully worded emails. They were backed up by um, graduate directors on the ground saying like, oh yeah, you'll get deported if you join a union. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, you can be deported if you go on strike, you yeah. know. Or um, even things like, we can't guarantee that WashU will be able to protect you if you go, if you participate in the union or sign the card. Like, right. Yeah. Which is not true. And, um, the, and, uh, the NLRB told administrators at WashU that they had to stop saying that. And since then, um, we had a provost named Provost Thorpe. He's apologized um, to our union leaders. About Not good that. enough, bitch. I know, <laughs> but no official apology or correction has been issued. And so that they were never officially, if they were ordered to make an, a public apology, they were never actually officially, like, they never actually issued that apology. One more thing I want to now. Um, we so um, the university is made up of different schools. There's the School of Arts and Sciences. There's the School of Engineering. There's the Business School. There's the Law School, the and med school. the Med School and uh, Architecture. Yeah, yeah. So there's different schools, and we don't all make the same amount of money. Mm-mm. Some students get more. We also don't have the same health insurance. Med schools health insurance is fucking amazing. Is that yeah. so? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow, that sucks. And yeah. I think that um I don't know which school it is, but I want to say it's some engineering students. They make like 
they do make thirty one thousand a year, which is roughly ten grand. Then Good some God. of the the de- and it, it's not the same over departments, not more over you know. It, there's differences among the schools, but yeah. among the departments, like my partner who was a chemist, always made more money than I did as an art historian. Uh, and for the record, listeners, I get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I bring that up to say, so we've already, so like, to to play on the safety of people's lives, to, to like threaten international students with like ruining them. Yeah, to exploit mm-hmm. their vulnerability. Is extraordinarily sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, but did did they not also play students against each other? By threaten by like making assert like assertions that oh well school of engineering if you join the union maybe you'll make less money yes mm-hmm. um, mm. yes and that's a union busting technique that's yeah. as old as unions themselves as trying to appease um, like a certain hierarchy within the hierarchy of pay trying to appease the people who have better benefits and make more money. And say, you know, uh, if you support, if you join with your fellow workers, we're not going to be able to pay you as much because your pay is going to be directly reduced in order to pay other graduate workers. Mm -hmm. The other argument was that um, uh, certain departments wouldn't be able to hire hire as many. Oops. The WashU, of course, wouldn't say hire. But they wouldn't be able to accept as many graduate students into the department. And so departments that are big like chemistry and like some of these other STEM departments would actively be like the argument that Washi was making that was that they would just shrink, that mm-hmm. this was like an attack on the sciences. So <laughs> laughable. WashU is using outright falsehoods, misinformation and overt threats to intimidate students. Yes. And mm-hmm. so students that, Obviously, there are always going to be people amongst our 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 high profession who do not share our lofty ideals mm-hmm. and would never support a union no matter what. Mm-hmm. But this undoubtedly affected the opinion of students who may have otherwise been sympathetic mm-hmm. into not voting. So October sixteen, uh, October two thousand sixteen comes around, the vote doesn't pass. Correct. Okay, so what ends up happening is that it's basically a 50-50 split. Um, Wow, all that and it was still? It was very close. It was very, very close. Yeah, it was very close. But um, on paper, the no's had it because they didn't count the challenge votes that we mentioned earlier. Uh. into. But the challenge votes were, as you could imagine, all yeses because – the university has hired, um, and through all of the all of these strategies, by the way, is under the guidance of um, Proskauer Rose, which is like a really well known union busting law firm. And so, WashU's administration has been advised this whole time by this union busting law firm. And so, the challenge vote was part of the overall strategy of making sure that students um, would be blocked from unionizing. And every single challenge vote, um, because we on the day of the vote, we were really organized and we knew who the challenge votes were going on, going into the vote um, uh, or basically coming out of the vote, I think, because Mm -hmm. students would walk up and say, I'm here to vote. Somebody would check a list, some quote unquote objective third party, and they'd say, oh, you're not on the list of um, legitimate voters, but you can issue a challenge vote. 
And um, so once they knew that they were a challenge vote, they would report back to union organizers, people on the organizing committee or um, resources from SEIU and say, hey, I showed up to vote and I couldn't because I'm a challenge vote. And so by our tally, um, students overwhelmingly voted to unionize. But here's the trick. And this was very well played on WashU's end. They have unlimited resources. They have nearly an $8 billion um, endowment. And they have the, you know, the, the finances to basically sit this out in court and wait for each one of those challenge votes to get litigated. And so, obviously, unions being what they are and what they do don't have the same amount of resources to take every single... There were, like, over 100 challenge votes. And so... The organizing committee got together and had an open meeting with union supporters, and we decided that we would pull our di- we would pull our petition from the NLRB, and we would become an unofficial. So, in terms of like recognition by the NLRB, we're unofficial in that WashU, under the Columbia decision, um, does not have any sort of uh, they aren't legally bound to meet with union organizers and create a contract upon which graduate workers and union members could vote. So flash forward to 2019. Now there's a new presidential administration and a new crack at this NLRB, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So now there's the proposed rule that would that would cr- make sure that would basically remove graduate student workers from the category of statutory workers. So any graduate union um, that was official right now and had legally bl- binding contracts, I see, would I no see. longer be able to pursue any sort of like legal type of route with their university. And so this would include like American University. I think Loyola has, if they're not already union, if they don't already have a contract, they're working on their contract and a bunch of other universities who have official NLRB recognized graduate student worker unions. I see. So just to make sure that I understand this, this um, recent reimagining of the NLRB could so here at WashU, we already don't have a union recognized by the NLRB. That right, we we couldn't make it for some reason. We were basically like, okay, yeah. fuck this legal game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. we're just going to become a group of group of activists that are graduate and now undergraduate yeah. workers, which SCIU supports. Yes, which SCIU supports and graduate workers currently pay dues. I pay dues. I pay dues. Um. So you so so what's go, what's at stake now with NLRB is that universities that already have officially recognized u, uh, unions could lose their status as such if being a graduate student slash graduate worker is no longer recognized by the National Labor Relations Board. Right. So if this right. proposed rule passes, not only that, but. Unions such as ours who do want to work towards being officially recognized so that they can have um, a seat at the bargaining table that is legally binding 
we could we couldn't pursue that if this rule were passed. So what'd you do? So um, SEIU invited um, a lot of graduate student workers who are part of their unions um, from all over the country. I met students from um, University of Chicago, Duke, USC, um, a lot of students who were local because this action took place in Washington, D.C., um, and so there were students from George Washington and American University and students from nearby Johns Hopkins as well. So uh, a um, national contingent of graduate workers. Um, SEIU flew us out to D.C. and we met with legislators and then we basically shut down business as usual at the NLRB. And the NLRB doesn't usually have a lot of uh, like activists show up at their door they don't have a lot of people i know i was kind of surprised by that fact since they're yeah, that's surprising. they are like the governing body between businesses and workers but they, it's partially because of location they aren't located on the hill they're located in washington dc but they're not like among yeah. like legislators so yeah. we were in two separate locations where we first went and spoke with legislators who were in support of graduate workers rights and in fact, there is a, um, a representative from Wisconsin who, the day we were there, which I think was November 14th, if my memory is serving me correctly, um, had uh, just that day proposed a bill that would wrench that decision-making power over whether or not graduate workers are employees or not, um, wrench it away from the NLRB and put that decision-making power in the, in the Congress um, which, uh, as we know, doesn't necessarily uh, – nobody in Congress is directly appointed by the president, right? right? They're democratically elected. Presumably. Presumably. And so it would be much more difficult um, for the status of graduate workers to flip back and forth. It's flipped back and forth three times in the last uh, nine now 19 years. So roughly every six years it changes, which is um, – I don't think something that happens in any other sector um, of employment or it's pretty rare. Probably. I don't know. Write us if you do know. Yeah. (laughs) Write Griselda. Write me. Griselda Hex at GriseldaHex.com. I mean, when I worked for the VA, we had, I mean, it, it was strange, but we had a union. I don't need to digress too far. How do you think it went? Um, I think that, so the, basically the way the action when we showed up to the NLRB worked was that, um, a a bunch of graduate workers along with, um, other labor activists, uh, are kind of like two blocks away from the NLRB, got together, you know, got our signs organized, uh, organized ourselves into a march and we marched to the NLRB and, um, a van met us there which held over 20,000 um, comment submissions by graduate workers and their allies to the NLRB, addressed to the NLRB, that basically, you know, are writing in opposition to this proposed rule and saying, here's why I need my right to unionize. Um, and so we had, I think, like 15 or 20 boxes of printed out comments. Um, and so I think that our... Um, 
our strategy was not only to show our numbers physically, but to like show up with these big boxes and have to, you know, they have to deal with these huge, you know, this huge amount of paper now. Were they like letters or like discussion forums? So the NLRB, when they propose this rule and they put it on the federal register, Mm -hmm. because um, there isn't a vote, they just decide whether or not, like Mm -hmm. nobody has really a democratic say in this. It's just the board decides. Mm -hmm. When they propose a rule and they put it on the register. Is the board elected? No, they're appointed by the president. Fucked up, right? (laughs) Isn't that fucked up? Did you think you had rights? Did you think this was a democracy? You're wrong. (laughs) There's been so many things like that that people are realizing lately. That's so, it's so interesting to think that the board in charge of labor, that is all, all income, all security, all healthcare for the entire working class is not Democratic, yeah. unelected, Who holds appointed. Them accountable? Because the incredible, people, the people can't vote them out, right? So people can call, I guess, for their submissal or their dismissal, but they're appointed and they serve under that administration. And then with the next administration, it changes. And since we know that Republicans and businesses are largely anti, well, first of all, they were very against the creation of an NLRB. They were very against any sort of oversight, period, because that's not good for business, right? Um, And whatever the Republicans' talking point is on this, I'm sure it's disgusting. But businesses don't want anybody to tell them, oh, you know what? You need to pay your workers enough so that they're not starving and so they can, like, afford, like, to have their basic needs met. Businesses have never wanted that. And so right now with the administration we have, of course, our NLRB is not pro-labor. That's just incredible. Like, can you, like, just imagine, like, here's a body that governs a group of people. And instead of being appointed by that group of people, they are appointed by someone accountable to that group of people. Mm -hmm. Like, who do you think they're going to like if, if you were on the neighbor, if, if you were on the labor relations board, and you were just like all all corruption aside, which undoubtedly in a situation like this, you end up on that board, allegedly, mm-hmm. because you have participated in the the corrupt system that places powerful people in positions of power. Yeah. But just ab- abstracting all that for a moment, like somebody puts you in a position. You are accountable to them and not the people over whom you preside. Like, whose interests are you going to represent? Like, you want to keep your job. That's absurd. (laughs) I mean, we've seen this play out like a million times in the Trump administration. Like, Trump really ran on this whole, like, uh, China's inventing this idea of uh, climate change or whatever. And then he shrunk the EPA, the Environmental Mm -hmm. Protection Agency, which, once again, he appoints the person who is the head of that. And so all of these bureaucratic, like, cabinet positions, these kinds of positions in Washington are appointments made by the president that basically, like, if you don't like it, don't elect the person that appoints, you know, people into those positions. It's the same idea with, like, when Republicans were like, well, Trump sucks as a person, but I really care who the Supreme Court nominee is gonna be and i really think that that's more important so like people i guess ostensibly the democratic process takes place um when you are submitting your vote for the person who would 
be appointing people into these positions. And so for all the businessmen who are not pro-labor, um, they are getting exactly what they want. It's mm-hmm. just the workers are getting fucked. You know, um, I recognize that uh, democracy in a modern sense is very complicated, you know, because it's like you can't stay informed about everything and you can't vote on everything. Mm -hmm. But like this idea that all of the people who run the military are appointed by the military. No input from any democratic system. Mm -hmm. The people in charge of labor, in charge of protecting the environment, in charge of every institution other than Congress are just put into power. Like, I don't know, that that doesn't seem right. It sort of reminds me, I think we talked about this in one of our policing episodes um, about the very fucked up uh, system in which you can make an accusation against a police officer and then that very agency will be the one to investigate your claim, your investigation. And so obviously they're not going to condemn, condemn one of their own. And this is, you know, working higher up, but the same sort of system. I think this is a, a good, um, like somewhat tangential. I have a somewhat like, this is an area where, mm-hmm. Graduate unions and academic unions, like whether it's adjunct, whatever kind of union it is on campus, um, can help individuals who see issues such as that have a little bit of say, at least on campus. Mm -hmm. So when I was in D.C., we met students from Johns Hopkins who were um, talking about what they'd been organizing around lately And they were um, discussing this issue where the administration was wanting to create basically like a private um, police force for their university. And I was like, what? Like like a Johns Hopkins kind of like Gestapo idea? Like, Mm. what is this? And then I realized, like, wait a minute. WashU has that. There has been one time where I've felt inclined to call the police and I was panicking and somebody had alcohol poisoning. And I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And so I called 911 and I was explaining the situation. I didn't even, I wasn't like, send a police officer. I was like, this person needs like medical attention. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you need to hang up and call Wash U's police force. And I was like, what? Were you on campus? Yes, I was on what campus. The fuck? Yes. And, um, uh, they can't transfer you. <laughs> yeah, like I know. You should be able yeah, to at least I do know. that. <laughs> and so, I mean, we've all seen them. Yeah. Wash use police like in their little short, their little khaki shorts. Yes, but they have their own cars. It says yeah, Wash do. U Police. Mm-hmm. It's separate from just security. Yeah, they have guns. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I was like realizing, oh, holy shit! Like I'm really not okay with that idea. Yeah. Like. That's a real problem, mm-hmm. especially in the neighborhood that Washu is in. Yeah. Um, and so, like, Johns Hopkins graduate workers are effectively standing up to their university and saying, like, we have this, um, like, collectivity in place of like-minded thinkers who are against this fucking idea mm-hmm. and will go on strike if you do that. Yeah. Or, you know, we're not going to turn back student papers on time. We're not going to submit our grades on time. Mm-hmm. And so th- we do have an effective means of standing up to administrators 
who are putting into place policies that can literally like end student lives, mm -hmm. like really affect certain um, components of student population. Um, so apart from hating that WashU has their own police force, and I'd never really thought of it before because I was just like, just accepted the idea that all universities had this, like graduate workers who are unionized um, can gather together to make improvements to their environment that go beyond just how much am I getting paid? What kind of healthcare benefits mm -hmm. do I have? Yeah. Like what? So just last um, summer, I had been talking about previously in this pod that we had been fighting for 15. And um, our, our union, um, one thing that we talk a lot about in our union meetings is the prevalence of um, all types of abuses that take place in the academic environment. Um, and that could be like sexual coercion. It can be anything. And so we've been able to um, create a coalition with fast food workers to discuss this issue um, because especially people who are in a situation of financial precarity, like if you've got a graduate worker who is being coerced by um, their PI or something like that, right now there really isn't effective recourse. There is Title IX. You can go see the ombuds. But as we know in America, when um, people who are survivors of these types of situations um, try and either seek counsel or try and, um, you know, report these issues, the university is really good at covering up. It's the same situation where the institution in which the um, assault or the crime is taking place is in charge of um, also investigating it. That's really problematic, right? I don't think that you have to I don't think it takes much to point out to anybody in America that universities have a habit of covering up sexual violence yeah. on their campus. I should hope not. Another thing, though, was that we won um, $15 an hour by 2021. That was just announced um, this last summer. It didn't include graduate workers, um, but it included every um, worker on campus, including contracted workers, which I think is really important that is good. to mm -hmm. point out because um, contract workers are among the most um, exploited. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you were talking about Griselda, um, the redefin because they recently redefined what we as grad students uh, like. That's whole like we're not um, teaching assistants or anything anymore. Or now instructors. we're instructors or instructors. We're mentor teaching experiences. Yeah, which yeah. was a part of the university trying to um, rhetorically maneuver us out of labor out of labors and into just explicitly students. Like we don't teach as work. We teach as being taught right. how to teach. As part of our training, that yeah. we're being trained. Yeah. One thing that um, I'm curious about, Griselda, is if, um, and you, Billy, um, if, is if, the, if our unofficial union has seen support, substantial support from faculty, because Griselda, you put in the notes that like, for example, with under, undergrad, um, union organizers like if they just skip class then they a professor could just like fail them or if we you know don't as graduate workers don't turn in our grades on time or don't like don't um grade papers on time like they can potentially just cut our funding right and the and the problem with that is like if if i am being asked to do some kind of strike action and that involves me not turning in grades or not going to class or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like that's not 
just me protesting my universe, like the administration. That's me taking away class time from my students and making things more difficult for my department, which could and both of those groups could be broadly sympathetic towards me. Mm -hmm. And so it really is a a catch 22 kind of situation where it's like they really they can really put the screws to us. Yeah, I think that what you're pointing out is that there is a system of goodwill um, that operates inside the university and um, people really believe in, you know, civility. Like, let's all be civil. And um, I think that that is a huge barrier to overcome, especially um, on campus, on a campus that is uh, at least self-perceived as being among the most elite institutions in the United States. 16 in the world, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Bears, number one. (laughs) Uh, um, But I think right right there is sort of the linchpin of why unions have such power and also the mentality change because, um, sure, if I don't teach my discussion section and my students show up and they're like, damn, I walked all the way here 15 minutes and they and she didn't tell me it was going to be canceled or um, she didn't turn my paper back in, in time and I don't know what kind of grade I need to shoot for on the final exam. Um, that's uncomfortable. But is that uncomfortable as uncomfortable as living in, in a situation where you aren't sure if you're going to make your rent? You're not sure if you're going to have to choose between... Um, Healthcare that you might desperately need, prescriptions you might desperately need, um, and groceries or gas. And people don't realize that until unions are like, you know what? Fuck you. Um, I can't get my basic needs met, and I want you to know that. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I didn't bring all of that up to say, like, oh, man, I just hate to have to choose. I'm just saying, like, it really – like, it's something – it's something unique about academia, the way the administration can can make me do, you know, like I, I can't like if, if I were just working a nine to five, I could just step away from my desk and be like, fuck you, supervisors. But in this situation, like, of course, I'm always going to to stand with the union and like participate in the actions and and do whatever I can to make the university take our demands seriously. But it is interesting how in our job, our immediate supervisors can be people who are on our side. Oh yeah. Leftists up and down in class, uh, Marxist approach all the way. Um, but then when you ask them to support workers, mm-hmm. even if they're tenured, they're like, mm, well, that sounds like a little bit too confrontational. Well, yeah, they can. But I'm saying, like, even if I had a professor, like, I, I, like, even if I had an advisor or a professor who absolutely was, like, ve- vehemently even on my side and was like, yes, do whatever. And even if I said to them, like, look, I've got to do this thing. And they were like, yeah, look, I support you. Like, it is still, it's not the same as, like, I'm just putting pressure on the administration. You know, like, I do have to put pressure on people who, Look, I'm 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 not trying to like uh, uh, scab or anything like that. I'm just saying I don't like that the university makes me put pressure on my students or like faculty who 
who could absolutely be on my side as a part of my oppress, like trying to resist their oppression. It, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they have a really unique way in academia of making strikes bad on the strikers, you know? Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Strikers always will get demonized. And in 1934, leading up to um, the NLRA being passed in 1935, there had been some pro-labor... Um, legislation that had been passed that allowed the president to like moderate like workers versus businesses um, relations. And it basically wasn't enough. And it led to like huge strikes in the auto industry and the coal industry and in the textile industry across the United States. And like if people, okay, I'm about to sound stupid because I don't really, I don't really know impossible how, coal creates energy like <laughs> like on a mechanic <laughs> level like you burn it and then there's electricity oh my god please <laughs> forgive me this reddit app. users help us out no, no reddit, users, up, reddit users reddit users stay out of it email us <laughs> stay if, out of do it. not do not come at our twitter account with some kind of um excuse me actually it's by heating water or I some dumb bullshit it does not matter who cares coal no that's not the important part of this story right i promise i'll also go look it up because it's a stuff you should know kind of thing. I, guess. I promise I won't. Yeah, I also won't. Um, I promise I won't tell you once I figure out how it how it is, how it's done. Um, but you know, people don't get their electricity that way, and you don't get your you don't get the textiles that you need to like put your kids in new clothes and stuff like that. And yes, that always I think is framed by anti worker. Um, groups as like like oh there's these union bosses who are corrupt and they're not playing by the rules or whatever um, but one thing that I really learned in DC is that like we have a huge problem with people not knowing what unions are because people were constantly passing and crossing our picket line and that's like labor union 101 you don't cross a picket line unless you're evil um, okay, well, I, no, I will take it that far. Um, I was going to redact it or at least don't reduce scab. it. Don't scab. Nope. Don't cross a picket line ever. Just don't cross a picket line because, you know, you like chances are you're a worker and you're not helping yourself and you're not, you're not, um, you're not honoring workers' rights when you cross a picket line. But people, like, clearly did not know what was going on. And part of it is because the NLRB doesn't get picketed, I don't think, that often. And so it's just not this thing. Like, people are getting arrested for um, civil disobedience all over D.C. all the time. And so it's, like, not really, like, a visual disturbance. It's like, oh, there's some people, like, some Black Lives Matters activists who are being arrested. Like, it happens all the time in D.C., but I don't think that there is that many actions um, in front of the NLRB. And people were doing civil disobedience, but nobody ended up getting arrested. And I, I personally was kind of thankful because I think we were able to do what we wanted to do without anybody getting arrested. Um, at any rate, I think that like the problem, like kind of the core of the issue you're pointing out is that unions and like workers who are unionized, who go on strike, end up being characterized as bullies um, and, you know, as like the bad guys, um, that's a result of people not really knowing 
what unions do and what they are and what they stand for. And it's so much deeper than just about workers' rights. Like these are communities where, you know, it's like commonplace for your union to like organize a time for everyone to go out bowling together or to have like a barbecue or just to have like a cocktail hour or whatever. Like they are very much a social group as much as they are like about um, like economic activism. Well, what started as a minisode has become a full-on episode. I could go on for even longer. We well, could listen to you. As well, I'm sure no longer. one wants. <laughs> well, no, actually, like, yeah. why not lean into it? Okay, so, like, I guess uh, I-, I got two questions for you, and feel free to jump in anytime sure. you want, comrade. Okay. Uh, Colonel. Colonel Comrade. Colonel Comrade. Comrade Colonel. Comrade Colonel Sunbeam. <laughs> And you can answer one, both, or whatever. Um, how, like, what what was the takeaway from Washington would be one? Like, do you feel like it was successful? If it was successful, what made it successful? And the other one would be like, what do you what do you see as the future for labor and academia? Like, what are mm. like how? I guess you can interpret that however you... That might even be a good wrap-up question. Mm-hmm. So maybe do one and then move into yeah. the other. Um, I think it that what we set out to do, we accomplished. And I think we even um, exceeded our expectations. Um, we made people irritated at us. We made people... We made ourselves visible. We delivered the comments... Um, which now there is like footage, photography, and film that shows that the NLRB, this abstract, and they never came downstairs and addressed us. Nobody ever came downstairs, which I think looks really bad on their part. Um, They can't just ignore those digital um, submissions, those comments that uh, workers and our allies are submitting. They can't? It's not, well, it's not as easily dismissed because it's not this abstract nebulous thing. Like, we know how many comments there are. That's a lot of comments. And I think that puts pressure on them to at least address it. Um, I think that we have to keep the momentum going. I don't think that that one action obviously is going to be enough. And so, like, each member, as much as they feel capable, needs to be verbal and visible about that. Um, And... In, in many ways, some some forms of activism, people feel more comfortable with others, like if it's wearing your button or if it's putting a sticker on a graded test that says, like, graded using, like, graduate labor or graduate huh. energy, all the way to, like, flying out to D.C. Um, and, and some of my colleagues were willing to put, you know, their, their time and potentially their safety on the line to be arrested for this. Um, but, yes, I think it was a success. Are we done yet? No. So uh, I we could start maybe with the, your question about the future of, of labor and academia. Um, and one thing I was thinking about um, in preparation for this, for this episode was um, how not only labor relations, but the types of labor that we do are changing so rapidly. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One recent develop in my own kinds of labor um, was teaching an online class um, an online language course 
um, which, as Billy here knows from my many rants, was one of the most terrible teaching experiences I've ever had. Um, and so uh, I was also reading this article on, like, universities and how they're going to have to come up with new business models um, in the upcoming years. Uh, a university with a business model. Mm, interesting, isn't <laughs> We are it? fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so one of the suggestions was precisely more online classes because it requires less use of the of the campus facilities. Um, and, you know, this is actually really interesting because they think they pay us less whenever we teach online classes because we're not using the facilities because, you know, supposedly we don't have to make the effort to commute to go into the campus. But at least for me and I imagine for a lot of other instructors this required a lot more labor on my part like just trying to provide the same amount of uh, the same detailed and, and quality instruction that I would be able to just give face to face I had to write out in detail um, type it out on the canvas online platform that we use um, and so you know I think that as these avenues of labor and the ways that we perform labor for the university change we're going to have to come up with new strategies for how to how to strike um, and I don't really know what those are yet but I think it'll be interesting to discuss some of those um, one thing that really struck me was when you and I, Colonel, were talking mm-hmm. about um, whether or not you teach. And we all we all here are teaching or have taught. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one thing I would want to say is, especially to the, the listeners who are not in academia, um, being in academia is often, pers- especially when you're in arts or humanities, when you're in heart. Humanities, <laughs> ethics, art, rhetoric, and technique, um, as opposed to STEM. I'm really trying to get that out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hashtag heart. Yeah, hashtag heart. Um, getting an education in heart is typically seen as um, uh, usually a vanity endeavor um, or worse, something frivolous. And I think that, like, you know, if you've got the opinion that um, that that getting an education in the humanities is frivolous and doesn't really contribute anything, then like, you know, hopefully you'll support our efforts to unionize because at least you believe that unions are important. Um, but if you rightly recognize that education in heart affects so many things, people's like all of media. All consumer products, every piece of art, every everything you read, everything you write, all all education comes comes through academia. Even even um, uh, developments in undergraduate and 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 high school and uh, childhood education, all of those things are absolutely informed by what goes on in the academy. The academy informs politics. That's how politicians get degrees is oftentimes through philosophy um, or political science, which is which are both hard. Law is not. But, you know, law should should also be informed by philosophy and ethics. Um, and I, and they do have to take philosophy and ethics mm-hmm. class, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, yeah. which is a part of heart. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is if you recognize that heart, if you rightly recognize that heart impacts society. 
and that it, and that and that education in heart is important to shape society then what we do in graduate work is not simply like oh i want to learn more about shakespeare i'm going to get a degree in that like we are training we are in the process of training to become educators and and academic education is not like a year long training certificate or anything like that like we have to learn to become masters beyond masters doctors of skills we have to 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 learn everything there is about an entire subject matter so that any question so that not only do we contribute to our field in ways that have never been done before but that we can address any question that we can go beyond any other kind of instruction and theorize new ways of doing things and that is a di- a long and difficult training process and part of our tr- this is what i'm getting to this is my point part of that means we have to learn how to teach us teaching a class is not simply like oh i need a little extra beer money this semester so i'll like pick up a I'll like TA for a professor or I'll teach a language course or I'll teach writing one or something like that. We are required to do that without teaching. We cannot get a degree. And so, and neither can the undergrads, by the way, like and neither without can our the teaching. And so like, this isn't like ensuring that our labor teaching in addition to research, in addition to everything else we have to do, ensuring that that, is protected and provides what we need to survive is just respecting us as laborers. And I mean, like, you know, for every, maybe predominantly academia is white collar, upper middle class to wealthy people who independently have means to support whatever they want to do. And so like, you know, they're not necessarily trying to like make a living as much, whatever, but like, I'm a first generation college student. Like I grew up for the most for most of my life in a single parent household. My dad's a crack addict. Like if it weren't for the like for meeting other graduate students who could help me, I would have no idea what I'm doing, no idea how to succeed. Like this is a an, an a place that does not cut slack for the non wealthy, and if you. If you think that there's any, if you have any idea that academia is somehow worth it and contributes to culture at large, then you have to support our ability to unionize or else it will just increasingly become, for one thing, shitty. Like you were pointing pointing out, uh, Colonel, like it's just going to increasingly be online mm-hmm. to increasingly um, uh, uh, contracted labor and it's just not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And then we're not going to be able to do it. It's just going to become for rich people. Yep. And then it really is going to become what people think it is in all the worst ways. Yeah. That was a very stirring. I believe now more than ever that I'm doing the right thing by getting a PhD in art history. And I want yeah. to emphasize what really speaks to me about what you've just said is that, sure, we're each becoming experts in an area of knowledge, but it's so much more than an area of knowledge. It's a skill. And you can apply that skill in so many ways. So as I've mentioned a few times, I'm an art historian, but I haven't spoken about art 
at all. And I and I own and I bring it up sometimes just, you know, in the podcast, um, mainly to like uh <laughs> because I have the impulse to do so. Um, but or to illustrate an idea, but I am only able to speak about sort of this really abstract issue because of the training that I have as an art historian to think about discourse, to think about rhetoric, um, and uh, to take part in, you know, complex conversations in a way that I hope is helpful at least. And I think that that is a way for me to do what is most important to me. Like art history is the vehicle, but like I think for a lot of academics, um, the impetus is something else, and it's a little bit deeper than just whatever your discipline is. Um, I think that, like, the future of academia or unionization in academia, I guess more specifically, is a leveling between the abstract, like, labor that we see in academia um, and at the university with other forms of labor um, and so like within the university, we have all different types of labor going on. Um, we have people who are doing a great job as groundskeepers, people who are taking, who are taking care of the spaces we inhabit, keeping it very, you know, clean and safe. Um, we have people who are preparing our food. And I think that academia, um, people in academia would do well to feel camaraderie, um, with, Yes, workers well in mm-hmm. those um, in those categories, and I really think that that's what unionization and academia has the power to do. And I think that ultimately that will be our source of strength. And and I think that it's something that um, on an individual level I've really enjoyed, but I've gotten to know a lot of people um, that are not necessarily people who are in my field um, and it, and on and on that note I think that it is a, a crucible for um, cross-disciplinary um, interaction too um, because a union is a place that uh, it doesn't matter really what background you have um, you're a worker and there's something about that experience that is uh, universal in a way and that there's like a common shared experience and so, yeah, that's, I think, where I think unionization and academia and yeah. I think more broadly is going. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll just say one more thing that you made me think of is like, um, you know, I think um, a lot of resentment towards academia broadly comes from this idea that like there's this like ivory tower of elitism that's just interested in replicating like elite structures which absolutely the academy does like i have i i have said it before i come out very strongly in favor of academia but i have no elude this especially this institution (laughs) has its primary purpose is to launder incredible amounts of wealth through endowments and scholarships and building contracts and all manner of things through to and around the board of trustees. Like I have no illusions that the primary purpose of this university is to make rich people richer. Mm -hmm. That being said, 
I think that a lot of resentment about academia comes from this idea that it just replicates certain class structures, which it does. But that is also like beholden to this idea that like if you are going to the academy, it like takes you out of this like blue collar like world of work. And when you're out of that and you're not a part of it, like oh, what do you better, like, what do you contribute? Like, here I have to, like, bust my ass doing some thankless job and you get to, like, read books and teach. Like, oh, well, I don't get that luxury. And I think that, like, part of unionizing the academy and nationalizing the academy, making it more public, making it more available, no student debt, no tuition, is is part of breaking that down and saying, like, for one thing, no one should be above any form of labor. And honestly, in my ideal world, world, I think that we would still do kinds of labor. We would still contribute in other ways to our communities and to the workforce. But also, everybody should have the right to an education. Because it is fun. It is nice to go to university. I had a blast doing my bachelor's. And that should be free for everyone. Anybody who even just wants to take a crack at it. And part of that is going to be unionizing the academy and nationalizing the academy. And 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 there shouldn't be re- that barrier. There shouldn't be that resentment. The academy should be a place where class hierarchies are broken down, where everybody is made equal in the attempt to just better yourself and learn. And unions can help. Yeah. Make that a reality. Yeah, yeah, by challenging the the wealth structures that make it bad. It's kind of a it's it's kind of ironic um that so um it says in, in no way anything really to do with colonization, but it reminds me of my research on Algerian France where Algerians um received French school training and were basically made experts in French thinking. And then they were like, now I'm going to use this information to dismantle you. And uh, the same kind of happened in this room. We're like, up, yeah. oh, you made us Marxist. Whoops. Yeah. Now we're going to be Marxist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we should plug uh, Red Scare, I think, which is doing a, a series on um, Wretched of the Earth by Fanon right Ooh, now. Nice. That's on my comps reading list. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. Any last thoughts, Santo gang? I love you guys, and I love unions. Unions for all. Yeah, support your union. Mm -hmm. Never cross the picket line. Never cross a picket line. If you take one thing away from today. Mm -hmm. How did Zizek sign your book? (laughs) Till death of our enemies. Of our enemies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, I'm Billy Pilgrim. I'm Griselda Hex. And I'm Colonel Sunbeam. And uh, this is Santo Verses, and uh, we'll see you guys uh, in a couple days. Got me feeling like Jim Jones. I'm a pimp out, no limp out. Couldn't copy my style in Kinko's. Put in work, run up on the killer, then I put him in the dirt. Run up in the building, see me gon' squirt. That's what a nigga get when they gettin' on my nerves. I ain't lying. Lay him on that curve. Ride on the killer who be coming that fur. Girl, you twerk. Twerk that kitty girl, make it turn.